Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my personal thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is all about Ingmar Bergman's 1957 classic, Wild Strawberries. 2018 marks the 100th anniversary of Bergman's birth. And all kinds of festivities and celebrations are happening. And I wanted to use the podcast as a way to celebrate his work. He was a really important um, director to me when I first discovered Art House Cinema. And his work continues to resonate with me. So I'm dedicating a few episodes to some of his films that I really love and that I really connect to. And one of those is Wild Strawberries. And I want to warn you, this episode turned out a little bit differently than I first expected. I do talk about the film, but what this episode is really about is what the film made me think about in my own life and how it forced me or inspired me to explore my own memories to explore my own struggle with loneliness, to talk about my relationship to other people, because that's partly what Wild Strawberries is about. It's about this elderly man going back in time in his mind and thinking about his memories, thinking about his life, reflecting on that. And it's also about his sort of troubled relationship with his son and how he's lonely. He's this lonely man and how he sort of takes comfort in his memories and his nostalgia. And so there was a lot there that I related to. And so even though I talk about wild strawberries, this is actually one of the most personal episodes I've ever created because I really talk about my own memories, my own struggles. And I want to just let you know that before you listen to the episode that this is about wild strawberries. It is about Ingmar Bergman, obviously, but it's also a really personal episode about my memories and my past and my life. And um, I just want you to be prepared for that. That the film is—I don't want to say it's secondary, but maybe it's a little secondary to what the film made surface inside of me. What it brought to the surface in my own life and in my own feelings. So I hope that you'll stick around, that you'll listen to the full episode, and that you will enjoy it. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast on a monthly basis and also access rewards and extras. You can find more information about it at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash herheadinfilms. At one level, you get a shout-out on each episode. So I'd like to give a shout-out to some of my patrons. First, I want to welcome a new patron. His name is David. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your support. And I'd love to give a shout-out to my other patrons, Juan, Iris, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, 
feminist overlord Michelle and Lindsay. All of you make this podcast possible, and I appreciate uh, all of you. So thank you so much. If financial support is not an option, consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes and or Stitcher. If you write a review on iTunes, I will read it on a future episode of the podcast. You can also tell your friends and followers about her head in films, or you can send me an encouraging message or interact with me in a positive way on social media. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at her head in films. And you can see all my social media accounts listed in the show notes of each episode. So let's talk about Ingmar Bergman's Wild Strawberries. Before I talk in depth about the film and give you my own personal interpretation and thoughts about it, I would like to give you some background about the film itself because Wild Strawberries is a pretty famous film by Ingmar Bergman and really of all the films that I'm covering in my celebration of his life and work, I would say this is probably one of the most famous next to something like Persona and the Seventh Seal. And Wild Strawberries was really crucial to giving him that international attention. It was made in, um, it was released in 1957. And so it was a big film in that way. And I did some research and there's a really great website and you can find it at ingmarbergman.se. And they have all kinds of articles and photos. And it's this really great archive that's about Ingmar Bergman's work. And they talk a bit about the production of Wild Strawberries and why the film was really important in Bergman's career. And so I want to give you some of that information. And then I want to talk a little bit more about what Bergman himself wrote about the film in his book, Images, My Life in Film. I read, um, I've been reading it and reading about the different films that I'm, that I'm covering on the podcast. And I will kind of go in depth with that because he writes some really interesting things about this film. I wouldn't say it's an autobiographical film. I wouldn't put it in those terms because this character is not based on Ingmar Bergman himself or anything like that. But I would say that as with a lot of Bergman's films, he is infusing some of his own torment and his own demons and issues into the film itself. And he's looking at things in that way. And so I do think it's sort of a personal film. And I think it's very personal when you watch it. So on IngmarBergman.se, they say that The idea for the film really came from a trip that he took to his grandmother's house in 1957. And I want to share the quote that they give because I think it's really fascinating and I think it gets to the heart of what the film is about and maybe why it remains so powerful and resonant for a lot of people. And Bergman said, quote, Then it struck me, supposing I make a film of someone coming along perfectly realistically and suddenly opening a door and walking into his childhood and then opening another door and walking out into reality again 
and then walking round the corner of the street and coming into some other period of his life, and everything still alive and going on as before, that was the real starting point of Wild Strawberries. And I think that's what makes the film so lasting, is that I don't think you necessarily have to be Isak Borg's age in the film to relate to some of the themes in it. You know, he's a 78-year-old man looking back on his life and rem- and remembering things. But I'm 28 years old as I record this. And for me, it resonated because I know that I'm getting older. I feel that I'm getting older. And I think back to my childhood and I'm someone who has very powerful memories and someone who is very connected to the past, very obsessed with the past and with my childhood. I would almost say that I worship my childhood. It's extremely important to me and and, and it haunts me and, and it pains me to mourn it. And I covered some of this territory in my episode about Bergman's film Summer Interlude and I don't know if I consciously did these films one after the other because y'all don't care about the order, but I care about the order of the episodes and how certain episodes can bleed into each other and there can be overarching themes. And Summer Interlude is about a, a, a woman, a young woman who's around my age, who's in her late 20s. And she's thinking back to a, a romance that she had with a young boy when she was 16, 15 or 16 years old. And what happened, and she's going back in her mind into her memories, and she's really mourning her youth and, and realizing that she's getting older. And um, and so I see some parallels, and that, that film was released in 1951, and this one comes out in 1957. And so it's only uh, six years later that Wild Strawberries comes out. And these characters, even though there's things that are very different about them, They are both people looking back on their lives, looking back on their past. And that is something that can resonate with you no matter what age you are. You could be in your 60s and 70s and feel a connection to this film. Or you could be like me in your late 20s and trying to come to terms with the the fact that your childhood is over and your youth is over. And I love this idea of the past being very present of this idea that the past is almost a house or a space or a landscape that you can wander through and inhabit and live again. And I think to some extent we're always reliving the past or reliving our memories, that memories are always so present and so alive within us. And I think Bergman himself felt that. And I'll share a quote with you later from Images that really... um, encapsulates what I mean because I think Bergman thought about these things so that was sort of the starting point for him that he starts to think about the past and and all of that and he writes the script and um at the Berlin Film Festival it won the Golden Bear Award as best film and this article in IngmarBergman.se tells us that this is really his most successful film Uh, in terms of the awards that it racked up and that it won. And it really established Bergman's reputation on the international stage. And those words are exactly in the article. And that's the way they put it. They said that this has also been a very influential film on other filmmakers who admire Bergman. 
So, um, so this was a big film for him and it continues to live on and it continues to have its own special magical power over people. I don't know if it's my number one favorite Ingmar Bergman film, but the reason that I wanted to talk about it and cover it is because some of the themes are very personal for me and really strike a chord with me in my life right now. You know, the memories, the thinking back to my childhood, the struggle to cope with the fact that my childhood is over and yet I have all these memories of it. And I really mourn that. It makes me really sad. I'm just someone who is extremely nostalgic, you know. So in Bergman's book, Images, My Life in Film, and this is a really extraordinary book. It's a great resource if you are a fan of Bergman or maybe through this podcast or through some other way you're getting more interested in Ingmar Bergman. I would actually really recommend Images because it's he's going film by film. And talking about what was the inspiration, uh, where did it come from in his mind, and you get a lot of insight. And so I actually want to quote heavily from it for Wild Strawberries. He writes in images that um, at the time he was making the film, um, he was actually going through a separation with, with with his third wife, and that that was very painful. He was also dating B.B. Anderson, who's in the film. She's in the film as two characters who are named Sarah. And um, things were sort of starting to disintegrate for him and B.B. Anderson. And he also said that he was feuding with his parents. And so that's sort of the backdrop under which he's creating the film or writing the film. um, And... All these things are really in the background for him and and inspiring him, I guess. And um, he, this film is also really about his parents, really about his father in particular. But it's about his parents, and I'll quote him. And he he wrote, "quote I tried to put myself in my father's place and sought explanations for the bitter quarrels with my mother. I was quite sure I had been an unwanted child." growing out of a cold womb, one whose birth resulted in a crisis, both psych- both physical and psychological, unquote. So, in some ways, Isak is like his father, but he says that Isak is also him, Ingmar Bergman. He writes, quote, Isak Borg equals me. I be equals ice and Borg, the Swedish, wor- the Swedish word for fortress. Simple and facile, I had created a figure who on the outside looked like my father, but was me, through and through. I was then 37, cut off from all human relations. It was I who had done the cutting off, presumably as an act of self-affirmation. I was a loner, a failure, I mean a complete failure, though successful and clever and orderly and disciplined." And he also writes that he was, quote, looking for my father and my mother, but I could not find them, unquote. And he also says, quote, I didn't know then, and even today I don't know fully, how through wild strawberries I was pleading with my parents, see me, understand me, and if possible, forgive me, unquote. And a lot of the film is about these relationships, because at the end of the film, Isak Borg 
dreams of his parents and he sees them it's it's actually a really beautiful image the film is this interesting mixture of sort of dread and fear and death you know the the shadow of death sort of constantly falls over this film to some extent but there's also something very beautiful about the film especially in the ending when he sees his parents and when Isak goes back into his memories memory is a place of comfort and happiness for him he goes back into his memories as a way to comfort himself and you know sometimes I think we have this idea that if you are a very nostalgic person or you think about the past a lot that means that you're stuck in it that you can't move past it or there is this expectation that you should move on from the past that you should get over whatever happened to you in your childhood or that you should not live in the past you shouldn't think about it you shouldn't indulge in all these memories but I think if you're remembering happy times in your life if you're remembering your parents if you're remembering a romance that you had the way the character in Summer Interlude does or if you're thinking about joyful moments the way Isak Borg does at times, then I think it can be something very life-affirming and life-sustaining. I don't think that you can ever cut off memory. It's not some kind of limb that you just cut off your body. It's something that you carry, and it's something that's part of you. And I think it's okay to remember. I think it's okay to have your memories. I think it's okay to long for the past to even ache for it I think that is something that's part of the human condition and I think it's something that's very much a part of Isak Borg and I think Bergman would kind of agree because he writes in images and this is a really beautiful passage from it he writes quote the truth is that I am forever living in my childhood wandering through darkening apartments, strolling through quiet Uppsala streets, standing in front of the summer cottage and listening to the enormous double-trunk birch tree. I move with dizzying speed. Actually, I am living permanently in my dream, from which I make brief forays into reality, unquote. And I think that connects to what I said earlier, that I sort of worship my childhood. I'm sort of obsessed with it as this time that is like Eden. It is like the time before the fall. And I remember those memories and they comfort me because I've gone through a lot of loss in my life. I'm only 28 years old, but I've lost a lot of people. When I was 16, my father died. The next year, my grandmother died. And then um, my uncle died about a year and a half or, or two years later. So within about three years, I lost three people in my life, my my father, my grandmother, and my uncle. And all that happened before I was 20 years old. So I've gone through a lot in my life, even though I'm 28 years old. I feel old. You know, when I look at Isak Borg, you know, that's how I feel inside almost. And I was thinking recently how I don't know if I ever was young. I think I was old before I was ever young. That I've always been old. That I've always felt old. And and we say that about some people. Oh, they have an old soul or whatever. And I don't know totally what that means. 
But I guess from a very early age, I felt like this burden on me. I felt this cloud over me. Um, I felt this seriousness. And then, of course, when I lost all these people when I was a teenager um, and went through a lot of tragedy that really destroyed me. And it's something I've never fully recovered from because I was so shattered by it. You know, the past has become this place of refuge for me that I think about my memories and they are a comfort to me at times, but they can also be really painful to remember what you had, to remember what you'll never have again, what's lost forever. That's not an easy thing, but sometimes for some of us, it's all that we have left are those memories. And so I do sort of worship my childhood. So for me, um, a big part of this film is about memory and it's about the past and trying to return to it, wanting to return to it. Um, And that's what Isaac Borg is able to do. That's what the film allows him to do is to wander those corridors of his past again. You know, a lot of, I was thinking about this too as I watched, a lot of uh, Bergman's films sort of take place within, within like homes and rooms and spaces, you know. But in Summer Interlude and in Wild Strawberries, his characters are out of doors for the most part. In Summer Interlude, they're wandering on the rocks and they're by the lake and, and they're outside in their bathing suits and they're in the summertime and in the sun and, you know, rowing on the lake and boating and all of that. And then Isaac Borg, for a lot of the film, is outside. He's on the grounds of the summer home that he that he and his family used to go to. And so I think in the film, the past becomes this landscape that Isaac is allowed to sort of roam and explore again the way he did when he was a child. And I think that's a very moving thing. Um, The way he slips in and out of the the past and the present. How the two overlap with each other. How they merge in a lot of ways, you know, and, and, and fuse. And Isaac Borg is played by a very famous director, Victor Jostrom. And I'm sure I probably butchered that name. I went online trying to find it and I... I could not figure out how to pronounce this properly. So Victor Jostrom, he directed The Phantom Carriage, which is a really influential and important silent film, really important film in the history of cinema. One that I have not watched yet, but I have a plan to watch it. I'm trying to uh, watch a lot of films from from the beginnings of cinema. So I've already watched a lot of stuff sort of from the 1910s, like Alice Guy Blachet and different things like that. I've been watching some Charlie Chaplin, but now I'm into the really fascinating era of the 1920s. And the 1920s have so many masterpieces um, I'm really excited to explore them. And so I haven't gotten to the Phantom Carriage yet, but I definitely want to. And for Bergman, the Phantom Carriage was just such a 
important film. <laughs> like it was really formative for him, he says. And he watched it every year, uh, at least once a year. He would return to it. He saw it for the first time when he was 15 years old. And um, so he, he says that The Phantom Carriage had a big influence on his work. So I'm sure to get Victor Jostrom to play this role was a really big deal. And um, yeah, I mean, he he could be difficult. Um he could he could be a, a difficult actor. He was older and he had been through a lot. And um, what is it? I think I yeah. There's this essay. I'll I'll, I'll make a a brief uh, tangent to an essay by Peter Cowie on the Criterion.com website. He wrote about Jolstrom and he said, "quote He was 78 years old and sometimes querulous." He was a lonely man whose wife was dead, his health was poor, and during the filming he often forgot his lines, a failing that would only aggravate him the more. Cinematographer Gunnar Fisher says that several scenes had to be shot in indoors for Jostrom's sake, unquote. Yeah. So he struggled a bit on the set, um, but when he got his whiskey, he was happy. He liked flirting with B.B. Anderson. And Bergman, and I think this might be in his autobiography, sorry, uh, The Magic Lantern. I think in that book, he talks about how a lot of the people on the set would um, ask Jostrom about the early days of cinema, you know, about his experiences. Yeah, I think I found the quote. I have the book in front of me because I've been um, reading it. Like, quote, like inquisitive children, we demanded that he should talk about the old days, about his work, about other producers, about his colleagues from the silent era. He talked willingly and amusingly. Yeah. So they really loved having Victor there to a certain extent, even though, you know, it wasn't uh the it wasn't the easiest thing at times but he was sort of like a relic or or he was like this really important person from silent cinema and so they wanted to hear his stories they wanted to hear about his life and what he had seen and what he had known and in the end victor did just such a wonderful job and bergman writes really glowing things about him in his book images my life in film he says that victor quote took my text made it his own, invested it with his own experiences, his pain, his misanthropy, his brutality, sorrow, fear, loneliness, coldness, warmth, harshness, and ennui, unquote. And he also said, quote, Wild Strawberries was no longer my film. It was Victor Jostrom's, unquote. So even though things could be a little difficult at times with Victor, it was a really great, um... It was a great um, collaboration and Bergman saw that he had taken this material and made it his own and infused so much of his own life into it. And so I I think Victor does a tremendous job in this role, bringing through the pathos of this character, but also that coldness, that hardness. And in Summer Interlude, um, our main character, who's just in her late 20s, she already feels herself isolating herself, hardening herself in the world because of the pain, because of the loss that she's gone through. And you see something similar with this character of Isak Borg, that he is this lonely man walling himself off from other people, living a very lonely existence. 
because of certain things that he has been through. And Victor Jostrom just brought through all of that in his performance. And um, so it was a well-cast role and just really, really, a, it's a beautiful film. And so now I'm going to dig into my own personal thoughts and feelings and emotions about the film. Why I love it. Why I wanted to talk about it. And um yeah, there'll just be like a brief little musical interlude and then I'll talk all about wild strawberries. So now I'm going to talk all about wild strawberries and why I chose to talk about the film and give my analysis of it, what I think about it. This is a film that I hadn't really thought I would cover. I don't know if it's one that I think about a lot when it comes to Bergman, but what came back to me were some of the themes in it. And they just felt really personal to me right now in my life because this is about a character, Isaac Borg. He's 78 years old. He's a professor. He used to be a physician and he is, he's going to receive an honorary degree from um, Lund Cathedral. So he's going to travel and go get the honorary degree. And that's sort of, that's sort of the premise of the film, but it's not really about him receiving that degree. It's about what happens on the way to getting the degree and his journey through his memories and through the past. And as I said earlier, I I am obsessed with my childhood and I mourn my childhood and sort of worship that time in my life. And it's something that sort of I think about a lot and that really obsesses me. But I think I was also drawn to the loneliness of this character Because it's something that I really relate to as well. Of feeling so isolated from people. And not having a lot of friends or a lot of family. And just feeling so alone in the world. And thinking about maybe some of the decisions I've made to create that condition in my life. To create that situation. As I said earlier, I've been through a lot of loss. Lost my father, my grandmother, my uncle. The death of my father was the most devastating loss um, because that was my father and I was very close to him and he was my best friend and he was one of the few people who really loved me and cared about me in the world. I've always been a lonely person. I was a lonely child and I'm not sure how to explain to you why I've been so alone my whole life. I grew up in a small town in North Carolina. I'm from the South And there are things about me that clash with the town that I grew up in. I am liberal. I am progressive. I am really a socialist, a democratic socialist. I love art and culture and literature and world cinema, as you can tell from this podcast. I think very deeply about things and I feel very deeply. And I'm not putting down the town where I grew up. I'm not putting down the people there because I knew some good people and I had some great teachers in the high school that I went to. 
but I just found it really difficult to connect with people because how do you connect with people? You connect through shared things. You connect through things that you like, shows that you watch, you know, books that you read. So if you're different and if you don't fit into the the place where you live politically, intellectually, philosophically, all of these things, what do you do? And so I think that's part of my isolation as well and there were very conservative strands within my family, I would say as well. Um some really bad views on the part of a lot of people. I wouldn't say I got the best family in the world um, or the most supportive people or the most loving people. I never felt loved by my family. I never felt like any of them cared about me. And I was right on both sides, on my mom's side and my dad's side. I never felt any kind of love or affection. And I know that's hard to say, but I I get to own my story. And Anne Lamott is a writer that I really love. And she talked about this once. And it might have been on like a thing in Facebook or may have been a Facebook post or it may have been in one of her books. But she says that you own what happened to you and you get to talk about it how you want to talk about it or write about it. So none of my family members listen to this podcast. They don't know anything about me or about my life. Because they've chosen not to have any kind of relationships with me since I was a child. Um, So I get to say what I went through and what I experienced with them. And I did not feel loved. And I did not feel supported. And even after my father died when I was 16, you would think people would be loving and supportive. I didn't get that. I didn't get that from my father's family. And I didn't get that from my mother's family either. So it's a sad situation, but I'm trying to explain why I am so alone in the world is that I didn't have a family that really loved and cared about me, except for my parents. I'm very close to my mother. I was very close to my father. Those were the two people in the whole world that I had, and one of them's gone. So I didn't have this family support, and then when I went to school and I tried to to fit in there or to make any kind of connections that didn't happen either because here I am very different reading Virginia Woolf (laughs) watching old black and white films um I wrote a lot I considered myself a writer I still think of myself as a writer um even though I don't think I'm very good at it anymore so I didn't have anybody, you know, I just could not find my people, I guess you could say. And I still don't know. I went to college, you know, um, a few years ago, graduated, and I still didn't find people there either. And it doesn't help that I have social anxiety. It doesn't help that I have depression. It, It makes it really hard for me to connect to people. It just doesn't help when you've been hurt a lot of your life. And people have abandoned you and people have betrayed you and you can't trust or rely on people. I think you just become really jaded and cynical. And I feel that way. I feel kind of bitter. I feel kind of angry because I see these other people that have friends who are loving and supportive and there for them. And it's like, why couldn't I ever find that? 
You know, I, I see, I hear these stories all the time. People have all kinds of friends and I don't have that. I'm alone except for my mom. And it's just my birthday's coming up. Um, as I record this, my birthday is just a few days away, but by the time that I air this episode, my birthday will already have passed. And I've just been thinking about how other people, when they have their birthdays, you know, they get cards in the mail from their family and they have friends who hold them a big party. People who bring presents and give them gifts and say nice things to them and you know they feel loved and cared for they feel like you know if something ever happened to them that that people would care and I don't have that you know when my birthday comes I'm not gonna have any cards in the mail from anyone nobody's gonna come over and hold or invite me to a big party where I'm gonna get gifts I'm just going to have some cake and ice cream with my mom. And I'm grateful for that. You know, I'm grateful for her. I am because we're so close and I love her so much. But that loneliness just kills me. It's just, it makes me feel so worthless. And I just think, what's wrong with me? And what decisions have I made? for this to happen you know and I guess I have kept people at a distance but what do you do when nobody wants to know you what do you do when nobody shows interest in you when you've made attempts to connect with people and it just hasn't worked it's like what do you do sometimes you just don't fit sometimes you just don't belong and I just feel like I'm this outsider all the time and that's a hard thing to feel and I want to be happy about my birthday but ever since my dad died it's just been a really sad day for me. I just don't feel happy about it. I just don't. So for me the past and my childhood it really is like a place where I hide And where I escaped to, because that was when I had my dad and I had like a somewhat different life, I guess. But like I said, I've always been lonely. And um, so much of this film, I think, is about Isaac's loneliness and, and him thinking about his childhood. But it's also about death. It's about the fear of death. It's about this man who's 78 years old having to face death and even though I'm 28 I do think about how I'm getting older and how I struggle with that and it scares me and I don't know what's gonna happen to me and I just really struggle with aging I really struggle with getting older and it's not anything about vanity it's just about that you're more years away from your childhood that you feel your mortality more and I just I because of my dad's death I am terrified of death and it scares me really really bad and a lot of my anxiety comes from that fear of death and I think that you can feel maybe Bergman putting some of that into 
into the film or into a lot of his films because he's like he was like me really he he just believed that death was the end that there was no afterlife no heaven because I'm an atheist and I've thought about how my atheism is like so tied to my fears and and to my anxieties about it you know it'd be really great to believe there's this other world wouldn't it but that's not what I believe and I don't think it's what Isak Borg believes either but the film begins with um with his fear of death with a dream about a nightmare that he has but Isak, even though he's pretty alone, there are some people in his life. I just want to talk about him for a moment just to set up the film because he lives with his housekeeper and um, that's the only person he lives with. But he does have a son who's a doctor. His name is Ewald. He's played by um, Gunnar Bjornstrand and he, he's been in quite a few of Ingmar Bergman's films. Like, if you see him you'll know who he is he's so recognizable um especially in winter light i think he's really amazing in winter light and um he's such an elegant man like when i saw him in this film i was just reminded he's handsome and he's just very elegant i don't know there's just something refined about gunner for me personally and and evald is is married to marianne he has a wife and she's played by the wonderful Ingrid Tulin. And um, I really love her. I want to see more Ingrid Tulin films. She's amazing in The Silence, if you have never seen The Silence. I tell you, it was so hard to choose films to talk about. Like, I could have talked about The Silence. You know, I could have talked about a lot of Ingmar Bergman films. And surprisingly, Isak's mother is still alive. She's really, really old, but she is alive. His wife has been dead for a long time, and he just has his housekeeper, Agda, or Agda, who lives in the house with him. Um, He knows that he is a lonely man, that he lives a lonely life, and that he has been a difficult person for people to get close to. And um, and we see throughout the film the reasons why his son is sort of estranged. I would describe his son as estranged. Um, there there is this coldness about Isak. There is this um, distance about him and this difficulty about him. And so he has this nightmare at the beginning of the film, and it's just it's a haunting sequence in the film. I think that's why I wanted to talk about it. He's walking along these streets outside. The clocks have no hands. A hearse passes by and this coffin tumbles out of it. And Isak is in the coffin. So when he sees his body, his dead body, it's really um, him confronting death, him confronting mortality. And the dead um, version of himself reaches out his hand to Isak. So the dead, the dead Isak is touching the living Isak. And really death is pulling him in. It's grabbing his hand. He's having to face his own corpse. And it is really a powerful sequence, I think. In the metaphorical and symbolic power of it, I think. 
that this is such a part of the human condition of this fear of what is to come in the grave and and what happens after death and you can tell that Isak is very terrified of it you know he, he wakes up from that dream and he decides that he's gonna drive to the place where he's gonna get his honorary degree till uh, he's gonna drive to Lund Cathedral and his daughter-in-law the Ingrid Tulin character Marianne she's actually been staying with him because her and Evald are sort of estranged like they're having issues in their marriage and so she left it's not till later in the film that we find out why exactly she left so she's been staying with Isak for a little while and she decides that she's going to go home so she goes with Isak and they are in the car together and um we see that Isak um I hope I'm saying that right. I, I looked for it online, but I feel weird saying it. Part of the reason that Isak is sort of estranged from Evald, his son, is that he wants Evald to pay back this loan. So he loaned some money to him, and he wants him to pay it back, even though it would be a really big burden on Evald to pay back the loan, that he'd have to work harder, that him and Marianne will always be in debt and it's not like Isak needs the money. He's a very wealthy man. That's what Marianne says. And um, Marianne says to Isak that his son hates him. That Evald hates Isak. And um, she says that Isak is selfish and ruthless. He is a hardened man. He is a cold man. So in this scene... It's actually a really important scene because we're starting to understand why Isak is so alone and isolated because of the way that he's treated other people. And Isak, in this scene, Marianne is really pulling back the layers. She's stripping away the artifice and telling us the truth of who he is and the pain that he has caused. He's not like a blameless victim in all of this. And I guess I have to think about, like I said earlier, what have I done to create my own loneliness? I think, I don't know. It's like some of it is beyond my control. And I guess I have to admit that some of it is within my control. I don't know. It's it's a hard thing. I don't think I'm a mean person. I don't think that there's a meanness about me, but... I am socially awkward. I do have social anxiety. Um, I have trouble talking to people to initiating conversations with people. I really at this point don't even like to be around people. And I avoid them as much as possible. So because it's just too painful. And the anxiety is too terrible. And I just find that when I try to talk to people. It just I always end up feeling more alone. I just don't think it does much, but, um, but I am angry and I am bitter and maybe I don't come off really good to people. You know, maybe my awkwardness and my social anxiety makes me come off sort of harsh or, um, cold. Maybe there is a coldness about me. I'm not sure how I come off to other people in everyday life. Um, I think sometimes maybe I have too high of expectations of people you know I, I don't think I expect perfection but 
I guess I I just expect decency, you know. I I don't know. I think it's hard when you live in a conservative area. It's like what do you do when you live around people who have really different political beliefs and and it's hard in the age of Trump. I I think we have to have our lines in the sand, you know, that if I'm around people who support him or support certain political causes, I really don't want to know those people. And I think we have to decide those things. But when you're living in a city, there's a lot, there might be a little bit more people for you to interact with. When you live in a rural area the way I do, um, your choices are a bit more limited. You know, the environment that you live in. And I don't want to make this podcast political. I'm not trying to do that. But it's sort of impossible to talk about these things without just telling the truth. That when you live in the South, when you live in the a rural conservative area, and you are not conservative... And, you know, you don't believe those things. I think it can make you feel more alienated. I think that we all live in different places. Some of you may live in certain countries or certain cities or certain cultures where you feel a similar way. Where you may have political views or you may have something about your identity and who you are that is threatening, you know, to the people around you or something that is unacceptable, or intolerable or taboo, you know, um, and and you can feel very isolated and alone because of that, and that's certainly part of my own isolation and my own loneliness. I'll just be honest, you know. I didn't want to get too political because politics are just—it's hard, it's painful, it 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 gives me so much despair to watch the news nowadays and I would like the podcast to hopefully be a little bit of an escape for you or a break from it but um I'm just trying to think about my own loneliness and like why I'm so alone as a person in the world and it's just there's a lot of factors to it you know it's it's not all within my control but I guess some of it is and with Isak a lot of it has been created by him the way he treats his son, the way he treats the people around him, that some of that loneliness has been created by him, but then some of it hasn't, you know. He's been through some difficult things, and he's sort of isolated himself from other people. And like I said a bit earlier, he has hardened himself and, and recoiled from human interaction in a similar way that our main character in Summer Interlude did, even though she's much younger. She's like, what, half half of Isak, Is, Isak's age? Um, she's just in her late 20s. Um, but she distances herself from other people. So that's a big part of that film. How How do you become a hard person? What are the things that happen to you to make you cold? And how do you resist that? Can you resist that? That's something I struggle with too. That everything I've been through, not just the loss, but what came after the loss. Not just the death of my father, but what came after it. And the kind of behavior 
that I saw from people that I never expected it from. I was never overly close with my family. Like I told you, I didn't feel loved and cared about for the most part. But God, I thought that if something like that happened to me, you know, if something like my father dying when I'm 16 years old, leaving my mother a widow and a single parent, you better believe I thought people would step up a little bit more. I did think people would be kinder and more sensitive and gentler. I guess that was too much to expect. So yeah, it did something to me. When person after person after person treated me in a certain way. You know? Yeah, it affected me. And it did harden me. And it did make me distrustful of people. And it did make me isolate and recoil from it. And I've never been able to change that trajectory. You know? It's something I still struggle with. That I don't trust people. And that I, that I, and I am alone because of it. And for me, I would prefer to be alone. I've always been that way. I would prefer to be alone than to compromise myself, than to be around people that don't share my values. And, and that may sound really extreme. I don't know, but I would rather be alone than to put up with it. You know, to put up with people treating me less than what I believe that I deserve as a person. You know, people who are not respecting me, people who are not showing that they care about me, people who are in fact toxic. I will not have that in my life if I don't have to. If that means I'm alone, if that means I'm isolated, then that's what it means. But that is the decision that I've made in my own life. That I would rather be alone than be treated badly by by people. So on this uh, car trip, they stop at this summer house that Isaac used to live in with his family. He said that he lived there for the first 20 years of his life. Or they went there every summer for the first 20 years of his life. And this was really resonant for me, too, because my grandparents, um, actually the grandmother that I lost in 2007, um, they had uh, a house. They had like this little lake house. Um, And we used to go there every now and then. I don't know if we went every single summer, but um, like maybe once per summer, once every few years. Um, we would stay there and I have a lot of memories of that house. It's been sold now. Um, it was sold after she died and things like that. Um, and I have some decent memories, you know, even though I have a really complicated, mostly negative relationship with my family when I was young in my childhood, when I was eight, nine, ten, those sorts of years before my father died when I was 16, I have some good memories, you know, I, I, even though I didn't feel completely loved and cared about, I guess I did feel like I had a family, that there were family get-togethers, we would have dinner with each other, you know, we would go there on Christmas, and we would go to this lake house every once in a while, it wasn't like a constant thing or anything like that. So I do have good memories. I don't want to paint my past as some kind of, 
you know, painful, tormented thing. That's the thing about the past is that it's complicated. You have really negative memories and you can have really positive memories too. And and people that you have a complicated relationship with can create both of those memories. So I have I have a lot of memories of that lake house. I really do. And I there was a bedroom there where um the what's it called the headboard the headboard of the bed was like a bookcase and there were all kinds of books in there because my grandmother she really liked um like mystery books like Patricia Cornwell and she liked romance books like Danielle Steele and Nora Roberts but strangely enough she also had The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood (laughs) I still remember uh that book I remember that iconic cover where they're they have the um the white hat on with the the wings on them and and the red sort of what cloak or something like that um and that's the kind of stuff that I read when I was younger I I read a lot of Daniel Steele books I'm just gonna be honest I read a lot of Judy Bloom books <laughs> and Nora Roberts and sometimes I I even consider reading those books again because it's like a comfort. It's like something that I read when I was younger. And I I, I read romance. I read mystery and, and things like that. Like Patricia Cornwell. Because um, that was the kind of stuff that my grandmother had. I have a really complicated relationship with her. But it, I still miss her. You know, it's like the, these are the things of our lives, right? It's, they're are people that can hurt us but people that we still care about and love and it's so complicated like complicated doesn't even get to it and I feel like I just keep saying that word um I losing her was really hard you know and um especially for my mom because it was her mother um so I remember this summer house I remember those books I remember when my grandmother would cook for us. She would cook uh, breakfast. And I can still remember um, she would cook sausage and she would add eggs to it and we would eat the sausage and eggs mixed together. And I still remember waking up and smelling it. It's like the whole house would smell like sausage and eggs. And in the South, here in the South, we love our sausage. <laughs> and um, it's a big part of of living in the South. We love sausage. And... um. Yeah, and it had a, this beautiful screened-in porch. And I, st- I remember, like, on summer mornings, sitting out there on the rocking chair and watching people jog. Like, people would jog in the neighborhood. And so I would just sit there in the rocking chair in the morning and watch people run by. <laughs> and um, I remember going to the lake that was nearby and swimming in it. And there was this arcade area. They had all kinds of games. They had um, a photo booth. I probably still have some pictures that I took. There was a Dairy Queen. There was all kinds of stuff there. And it was a really fun place. There was like um, a place where you could ride rides and play like carnival games. There was a carousel. I still, one of my happiest memories, so many of my happy memories are at that place or at that summer house, and at the arcade, playing games, playing skee-ball, and um, getting a cone at Dairy Queen, and 
swimming in the water and and just doing all that stuff and the carousel is a big memory like I still remember being on that carousel I was on one of the horses you know and you know you go around and like I can see my mom and dad watching me and I'll always remember that you know and then every time you do a rotation and then there their faces would be my mom and my dad and I'll never have that again I'll never, I'll never be that little girl again. And I'll never have both my parents together like that again. And that's really hard. And so that's what makes the ending of the film, like, really touching for me. Is that when Isak has that dream at the end of the film, he he remembers his parents. But that summer house, whew. That brings back a lot of memories. I mean, my main memories are connected to my grandmother and my mom and my dad. Those are really um, where most of my memories go to when I think about that 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 house that they had. Um, it's just, wow, those memories are just really freaking powerful. <laughs> um, but they're happy too and like, I, when I want to be comforted, I'll I'll think about them because they are really beautiful. And I do things to try to, I guess, recreate them. Like, like I'll make sausage and eggs. And so every time I, I smell it, I think of the summer house and um, like things like that. Yeah. Or like I said, maybe rereading some of the books that I can remember that I used to read that my grandma owned. You know, like that that would comfort me, maybe. I don't know. I haven't read Danielle Steele in a long time. That's not the kind of stuff I tend to read. I'm much more like into serious literature like Virginia Woolf and Fernando Pessoa and, you know... Stuff like that. Sylvia Plath. <laughs> Clarice Lispector. But maybe I will go back and read some Danielle Steele one of these days just to remember my childhood. Um, so they're at this summer house and Marianne goes off to swim. And all of a sudden the house transforms. It's no longer how it is when Isak is 78. It's how it is when he is a child and the grounds change and everything. And he's really going on this memory journey um, and he's transported back in time to that place in his life, you know. And now we see B.B. Anderson's character, Sarah, and she's picking wild strawberries she's wearing clothes from the past probably the turn of the 20th century sort of clothes and sarah is this cousin that isak had and that he really loved and um she didn't end up marrying him she ended up marrying his brother siegfried and that was obviously something very painful. And there's another scene in the film that leads us to believe or shows us that Isak's wife cheated on him. So this is a man who has, he has hurt people, but he's also been hurt by people, you know. And I was thinking as I watched the film this time how 
the strawberries in this film are almost like his Madeline, right? Um, you know, Proust has the Madeline that, what is it? He dips it in tea or something like that? Or I don't know. I've, I haven't read Proust. I haven't read his opus, his masterpiece, but I do think that there's like this cookie or something that he eats and he's sort of transported into his memories. And so the strawberries are this thing that triggers his memories and makes him think of the past. And he's able to wander around the grounds of this house and he sees people from his youth. He watches them sit down and eat. And it's such an evocative idea to me, this idea that You could go back to a place from the past and revisit and actually witness the memories happening again. Like, I just love that idea. And I love that Bergman explored the power of that. And and I guess that's kind of what we do in our minds to a certain extent, that we're sort of traveling back in time and reliving these these events. But it's kind of how I feel sometimes when I think back to that summer house or when I think back to my childhood home that I lost a few years ago. Um, you know, I think back to those memories. and, and it, But it's painful, too. It, it, there's a comfort to it at times, but there's also such a pain to think about what you've lost and what you'll never have again. And he really gets lost in the past for a little while. Until there is another intrusion and he has to come back to the present. He has to come back to his reality. And there's B.B. Anderson again, but she is like a modern young woman, also named Sarah. And she's like in blue jeans and a t-shirt. I think she's like in a plaid shirt. She has short hair. She's so cute. I love B.B. Anderson. And so he has to leave that place of the past and come back to the present. And she has two male companions that she's probably trying to choose between or something. And they're traveling to Italy. And he offers to give her a ride. And there's different things that happen on that ride. Um, Their car almost collides with another car. And they offer to give a ride to this couple who's like bickering and unhappy. And all they do is bicker and argue with each other when they're in the car. And so eventually Marianne asks them to leave and get out. And um, yeah, they go and they visit Isaac's mother. And she's quite elderly. And then he's back in the past again. And he's talking to Sarah again in the in the past she's in the the older clothes and um they're actually talking to each other before he had wandered the grounds of this this place and nobody had noticed him or acknowledged him the people from the past but now he's actually confronting sarah you know he's interacting with her um as she would have been decades and decades ago And so in this scene, he's an old man, she's still a young woman, but the past and the present sort of meet in this scene, and she holds up a mirror, and she makes him look into it, and um, she says that she's going to marry his brother Siegfried, and he says that it hurts, and then she runs away, Um, she grabs a baby and goes into a house, it's sort of this dream sequence, right? And 
it's there to represent the fact that Sarah did not marry him. That she married Siegfried. She had a baby with him. She had a life with him. And I think Isak was deeply hurt by that. And maybe he never fully admitted it to anybody or to himself, but it comes out now. I mean, I think it's very telling that he goes back to that summer house. He's going on this memory journey. That's what I like to call it, a memory journey. And what does he immediately think of? He immediately thinks of Sarah. So there was something sort of unrequited there, and there is still an aching there. There is this sense of what would my life have been? If I had married her, if she had married me, if we had been together, I think there's a sense of regret and a sense of loss that he feels about Sarah. I think it says a lot that this memory journey is so much about her and about the fact that they weren't together and they didn't end up together. Um, I think that's important. This, This is something that deeply wounded him. And you add on the infidelity of his wife. And I think you see why this man has become so lonely and cold. And he's built up these walls. And he hasn't let anybody into his life. There were things that happened in his youth. Before his son was even ever born. That planted the seeds for who Isaac has become. And I think it's a reminder to the viewer to be aware of these things that maybe Isaac is a warning to some extent, you know, that look what you can become if you let certain experiences harden you. And earlier I talked about how I myself feel like I am becoming cold. I am becoming cynical. I am becoming all the things that I don't want to be. I don't want to be bitter and angry and mean and cold. I don't want to be that kind of person. I'd love nothing more than to be this happy, vivacious person, you know? I don't want to be negative. I don't want to be scared. I don't want to be alone, you know? But I don't know what to do. I don't know how to connect to people because there's something about me that people don't connect to. And ever since I was a child, I have felt it. That there's something wrong with me. There's something different about me. There's something that just doesn't make sense or doesn't fit or doesn't draw people to me. There's just something unlovable about me, I guess. I don't know. I can't explain it. I don't know who else to be except who I am. You know? But... This film makes me think a lot about my loneliness and about my life and decisions that I've made and things that I've done to isolate myself from other people. And I don't want to harden myself against the world. I do want to stay tender and soft and sensitive. I don't want to become like the people who have hurt me. I don't want to be like that. And I don't want to hurt other people. But the loneliness just eats me alive and it hurts me and it wounds me. And I can't help but wonder what I have done, you know, why it has gotten so bad, why I am so alone. Um, And how do I break through that? How do I change it? I don't know. I really don't know. And it's just this ongoing thing that I think about. 
And I think it's why I was drawn to this film. Um, yeah. And we learn at the end of the film that Marianne is pregnant. And that when she told Evald, Isaac's son, that he was furious, he doesn't want to bring a child into the world because he hates it. Yeah, I mean, there's a very powerful scene where he talks about um, how this is not the kind of world to bring a child into. And, um, you know, Marianne tells him how cold he is, just like his father, just like Isaac. So Evald and Isaac, they're very similar in a lot of ways, even though they sort of clash and they have this estranged relationship. I mean, really, Evald is obviously profoundly affected by his relationship with his father, and it may not have been very loving or affectionate. And so he's really just kind of going off what he's learned and the way that he's been treated. Because unfortunately... We can often treat other people the way we've been treated. You know, that if we've not been treated well or people have been mean to us or have abandoned us or whatever, that sometimes we can do that to other people. And I'm sure I've done that. I'm sure I haven't been a great friend or a great person 100% of the time in my life. I've certainly, I've tried my best, but I'm human and I'm flawed and I'm sure I need to be forgiven for things and what can you do? You know, sometimes you're flawed. Sometimes you make mistakes. Sometimes you're not the greatest person or the person that you want to be. Um, that's life. <laughs> that's, that's how we are. We can't be perfect all of the time. And I certainly don't expect perfection from other people. I, I really don't. But I guess maybe sometimes I can have expectations that are too high. But, um, Evald and Isaac, you know, there's such a distance between the two of them, even though they're very similar. And Isaac does receive his honorary degree, and um, it's a really great moment for him. And it seems like Marianne and Evald might reconcile. So even though the film has these really heavy themes, and it's about death and loneliness and regrets... There is something, I think, life-affirming about the end of the film. And um, Isaac sort of reaches out to his housekeeper, Agda, and um, tries to have a more deeper connection with her. Um, more deeper. <laughs> That's really grammatical. Tries to have a deeper um, connection with Agda, but she's very wary of it. But I think it says a lot that he tried that he made that effort, even though it didn't go over too great. Um, and then later that night, those kids that he had given a ride to, you know, Sarah, played by B.B. Anderson, and the two guys, the ones that were going to Italy, they're outside his window singing. Um, and you watch them run off into the night, and it's like you can almost see Isaac remembering in his own mind when he was that age, and when he was that carefree and happy and, you know, that's kind of over for him now in a lot of ways. Um, and it just ends with him alone in his bed. And he says that he likes to think of his childhood memories. 
that it's a comfort to him and he imagines the summer home again and Sarah appears played by B.B. Anderson and she guides him to his mother and father and he sees them in the distance sitting on a rocky cliff overlooking some water and there's a close-up of his eyes and they're full of tears and it's just him in his bed remembering his childhood remembering his parents and it's just an incredibly moving and beautiful ending you know even though he is alone he is isolated from other people he has his memories that he can explore and he can wander through and he can think about and people hurt us and we can have really complicated relationships with people as I have talked about but as painful but as painful and complicated as those relationships can be there can be moments of beauty in them and and there can be a sense of connection and all of that and it's interesting that Bergman talks about how this film was sort of him coming to terms with his parents and that he was quarreling and and he was having difficulties with them at the time when he was writing the film making the film and but I think there's something really beautiful about it ending that way with Isak seeing his parents in the distance and I have a I had a really loving relationship with my parents, you know, but I have much more complicated relationships with other people in my life or other family members that I'm obviously being vague and abstract about because I don't want to go into every detail about it. <laughs> um, but I think some of you can probably relate to that. Um, so I just think it's, I think it's really beautiful that it ends with him seeing his parents in the distance, you know that he can see them in his mind as he did as a child but he's also seeing them as a 78 year old man now his mother is still alive I had to remind myself of that at the end I was like well the mother's still alive but obviously the father is not and we don't know the full relationship that Isaac had was had with his father was it similar to the kind of relationship that he has with his son Evald we don't know um but I don't know, there's just something very moving about him thinking of his parents and of that being a comforting memory for him. And this scene in particular reminded me of something from Virginia Woolf's novel, Mrs. Dalloway. And this is probably my favorite book by Woolf. I also love The Waves, though. That's a really beautiful book. But Mrs. Dalloway, I find myself just coming back to it over and over again. I've read it several times. And I still just love this book so deeply. And it reminded me of a scene in Mrs. Dalloway. And if you haven't read Mrs. Dalloway, it's really, it's about the day in the life of a woman named Clarissa Dalloway. And she's planning a party. Um, and the book is split between her narrative of planning this party and the narrative of a shell-shocked veteran from the first world war and these two people do not meet you know they, they never meet each other but their lives are sort of interconnected in really mysterious and interesting ways um and it's just 
I don't know. It's this stunning novel. I have I haven't read it in quite a few years, but I should probably reread it at some point soon. Um. And so there's this scene where she's talking about her parents, and her parents are dead. And um, I just want to read you this paragraph, and it'll explain what I'm trying to say. Quote, Do you remember the lake, she said, in an abrupt voice, under the pressure of an emotion which caught her heart, made the muscles of her throat stiff, and contracted her lips in a spasm as she said lake? For she was a child, throwing bread to the ducks between her parents. And at the same time, a grown woman, coming to her parents who stood by the lake, holding her life in her arms, which as she neared them grew larger and larger in her arms, until it became a whole life, a complete life, which she put down by them and said, This is what I have made of it, this. And what had she made of it? What, indeed, sitting there sewing this morning with Peter? Unquote. So in this scene, she's thinking back to her parents by a lake, and she's imagining herself both as a child with her parents, but as an adult now, as she's having the memory. And she imagines her life as this thing that she's holding in her hands and that she is showing to her parents and saying, this is what I have done. This is what I have created. And then she wonders, what has she really made of her life? Because she's, she doesn't know. She's doubtful about the kind of life that she has created. And if it would impress her parents. If it would be something that they would be proud of. And so that that ending of Wild Strawberries. Where, where Isaac is thinking of his parents. And they also happen to be by a lake or by a body of water. Which is sort of interesting. The parallels. Thinking him thinking of that in his mind and that being comforting to him, and maybe he's thinking that too. Like, what, what, what would my father think? I mean, obviously his mother's alive, but what would his father think of his life, possibly? So it's it's a beautiful way to close the film. It's it sort of comes full circle in a way, um, and it shows how the past and childhood and our memories can be a place of comfort and can be a place of refuge. And that's certainly what it is for Isaac. And um, so even though he has this loneliness, he has these regrets, he has this fear of death, thinking back to the early days of his life, those early years at the summer house, those first 20 years, when he had both of his parents, when he had the rest of his family, because um, I would imagine by the time he's 78, quite a few people in his family have probably died. Um, you know, when he had Sarah and was in love with her before she married Siegfried. So that is the time in his life, those first 20 years, that are the most powerful and the most um, unforgettable for him and the ones that really made him who he is their beauty and their pain because that's what our childhoods are that's what those years are they are full of so much beauty they're full of you know summer mornings sitting on the screened in porch on the rocking chair eating sausage and eggs and um, reading the books that my grandmother had and all that comes with that 
you know, with these very complicated relationships and, and painful relationships at times. There are those beautiful memories. And then there is the pain that comes later of people not caring about you or loving you the way that you need them to love you. And that's the thing is that Isak needed to be loved by Sarah and wanted to be loved by her and wanted to marry her. And he couldn't have that. And he lost that. And I think that made a a big scar on him emotionally to some extent. And just other experiences that he's had, obviously, have made him cold and bitter and hardened against other people. And so then, in a way, he's replicated that kind of behavior, replicated that pain that caused him so much pain, right? And so, but that is the past. It is this place of of pain, but also beauty, depending on your childhood, depending on what you went through. But it, it's this contradiction for me is that I think so much about my childhood. I think about being on that carousel and I think about getting ice cream. And I think about the time that I spent with my father and the the things that we did. And then I also realized that that was a, a time of great pain for me. That I was struggling with things that I felt so alone just because I told you I felt alone my whole life, you know. None of that went away just because my dad was alive. That was part of my life the whole time. But the past is this landscape. It is this space that we can wander through and think about, well, what are the things that shaped us? What What are the things that haunt us? What are the things that stay with us? What are the things that made us who we are? But then, of course, as we become adults and we get older, we have to decide what do we keep? You know, what are the memories and the things that we keep? At some point, we have to try to let go of some of that, try to resist some of that, you know, try to resist the things that harden us and that make us cold towards other people and try to decide to not be like that. You know, and we don't have an answer at the end of Wild Strawberries. You know, will Isaac have a better relationship with his son you know, will he will he have more friendships or relationships with other people? I doubt it, you know. I don't know. But that's not really the point. But this film creates a space for us to think about our memories, to think about our childhood, to think about our loneliness, to think about what are the things that have really shaped us as people what are our regrets? What are our relationships with other people? And how have we treated others? How have we been treated? There's there's a lot there. But those are the themes. I'm not saying there's not other themes, obviously. If you watch it, you'll get something completely different out of it than me. But I just want to end this episode by saying that's the reason that I watched it. Is that I wanted to think about these things. I wanted to think about my memories and my childhood and my past and my relationship to it and my relationship to other people and how those relationships have become very difficult, you know, and how I have become isolated and alone and I don't totally know how to change it or what to do about it. 
But that's something that is an ongoing issue for me, an ongoing conversation that will maybe, you know, maybe I'll pick it up again in the future. But that's definitely a big part of this film for me and why I chose to talk about it with you and to share some personal things, um, to share a lot of personal things. Um, so I hope that I hope that this episode was worthwhile for you. And I definitely thank you for listening to it. And um, I'll stop here. I've gone on long enough. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.